Good morning, church. There's something nice about not having to introduce myself. I've eaten with everyone here, so that's, that's fun too. Um, it's always exciting. It's always a privilege. It's always an honor uh, and a joy to get to look into God's Word and to get to do it with people I know and care for is even more so. Um, as Chris said, uh, don't worry, Joel, we'll be back next week. Uh, he's down at Pineda preaching on Titus. We're going to continue our series in 1 John. Um, we're doing a chapter a week, which this week is a pretty big challenge because there's a lot in this chapter. Um, when Joel told me I was going to preach on chapter 2, and I took a look at chapter 2, on first reading, it wasn't very encouraging. It was kind of a hard chapter to, to read through quickly, and it sounds like a lot of discouragement in the chapter. It sounds like a lot of uh, challenges in the chapter. If you just look at some of the headings, it, they come off as don't sin, love everyone, keep the commandments, don't love the world, and discern the antichrists. Right? That sounds like a list of things I'm not very good at. Uh, it's a chapter on how to feel bad about myself in three easy steps, right? When you read the headers. Is this what the beloved disciple, the disciple of John, is this what he meant for us? I, I don't think it is. And I think when we spend some time and we, we dive deeper and we look into it, we'll see uh, there's something so much better for us. What, what I hope we see is that we see a call to love, to know, and to obey God. And we're also going to see reasons for assurances instead of reasons for our doubts. And I hope today, just like every time that I preach that by the time we're done, we'll have seen Jesus as glorious and worthy of our obedience, our love, and our lives. And as I said, just like when we were going through the Minor Prophets, we didn't have time to dig into the Minor Prophets especially, and we're not going to have time to really give this chapter what it deserves. It's five or six or more sermons probably in this chapter. So I would encourage you to um, go back and read it. Read it with your family. Uh, do some study on your own. It really deserves it. It's a beautiful letter, and I'm not going to do it its full justice today, but I hope we get the, the big picture. So let's, let's pray again before we really dive in. Father, we come to you today dependent on you. We need you. We, we need you to help us love you, to help us know you, and to help us obey you. We need you to help us live in the light with each other. We need us to help, to help us rest in you and to trust in you, to help us lean in this morning and, and listen to what your spirit would have for us in your word. Help us be persistent in our pursuit of holiness and never dependent on our own efforts, but to rest in your completed work. God, I pray that you're with us today. Pray all these things in your name. Amen. I know for me, I like to have a little bit of context and a little bit of background. It helps me read uh, the chapter uh, or the book that I'm getting into. I always like to read the book notes before the, before the book. Um, and one of the things that comes up in this chapter is uh, there's a warning against Antichrist. And we're not going to have time to really get into that warning today, but I think it's key. Um, there were false teachers that had already risen up in the day that were part of the apostles, the disciples, and had branched off. Uh, and what they were teaching was uh, heresy, and it was called docetism. And what it, meant, what it meant was that 
Jesus appeared to be human, appeared to be physically present, but wasn't actually a human. This is what they were teaching, um, that he was kind of a celestial projection of a human, that he, wasn't, that he was God, but not human. And so it wasn't, it wasn't a truth, right? It, that was a lie. And uh, they were leading people down these lies, and they were leading people to even doubt their own uh, beliefs and doubt their own salvations. It was pretty damaging. And, and John is writing to the church who's, who's beginning to be taught these things. And John, as you remember, was with Jesus. He was physically present. We read it uh, last week in verses 1 through 3, uh, chapter 1. You can see it says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and which we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. We have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which is with the Father and was made manifest to us which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. So John's pointing out like every sense, you know, we've seen it, we've heard it, we've touched it. I, I put my head on his chest, heard his heartbeat probably. He was there, he was a man, he was physically there. Um, he is providing assurance of the truth. And we see that he's, he's writing to these Christians and that assurance that he's going to provide today is as beneficial to us as it was to them 2,000 years later. He's writing to remind them of who Jesus is, that he was a man, and as a man, he was tempted. As a man, his substitutionary atonement was, was accepted. He died on our behalf. So that's, a, that's important for these people under false teaching, and it's important for us today under teaching of the gospel. So as we go into the chapter, I invite you to, to remember that, why John is writing and we start off, we're in chapter 2, verse 1, and we start off with an unusual greeting. He says, my little children, right? Now, John, when he's writing this, is about 80 years old. He's an old guy, especially for the time. And so, yeah, everybody he's writing to is probably younger than him. But that's not why he's addressing them as my little children. It's more of a term of endearment. We see it throughout the letter. It's a term of caring. It's a term of responsibility. Uh, it's a term, uh, he's reminding the recipients that they have the same father, right? And John is a spiritual father. We'll talk about that later. But he cares for the church and he cares for those uh, around him in the congregation. And here in verse 1, we, we see uh, the first reason John lays out for why he's writing this. He says this a few times in the book. I'm writing this because, I'm writing this because, I'm writing to you because. And this is the first time we see it. And he says... And every time we see it, we should pay close attention. But this time he says, I'm writing this to you. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Right? Great. <laughs> so they may not sin. So we may not sin. Well, you know, we've already messed that up this morning, probably, right? We've already sinned. This can't be right, right? That, that they don't sin, that we don't sin. Is that the reason? We just remember from last week, Chris just mentioned it too, the, the fact that we sin. It says in verse 10, one, chapter 1, verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Romans 3.23, Paul tells us, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So John is writing this letter so that they may not sin, and we also know that it's inevitable almost that we sin, right? We're going to sin. So... It's inevitable that we sin, and it's also to be avoided. And that's the tension, right? 
It's a tension Joel talked about last week of the flesh and the spirit. It's a tension that we live in. It's a tension, a constant battle we've signed up for, the waging of the war against the flesh. We see in verse 1, if we keep, if we keep reading, there's a perfect remedy for our sin in the second half of the verse. But I, I don't want us to skip right to the remedy. I think there's a tendency to look at the remedy for our sin and not the sin in and of itself. At times, I, I myself see sin as such a, a foregone conclusion that my focus is on forgiveness and not on prevention. I become convinced that we sin. I'm going to sin. I sinned again, but God has grace and God uh, has a remedy for that. But the call not to sin that John is presenting here is real. He's, he's asking, he's writing this so that they may not sin. But it's not being presented as what, what some would call fire insurance, right? If you don't sin, then you won't go to hell, right? Behave yourself so you don't go to hell and be punished. What John does is he holds out Jesus. He holds out Jesus Christ and all his attributes for us so that we may not sin. He's holding out Jesus and the love of Christ as a preventative measure. So there's many ways to go about rules, right? The, the rules that we break that um, we're supposed to follow. Some of us are better at following rules than others. Some of us enjoy following rules more than others. Tracy enjoys following rules more than I enjoy following rules. Um, and there's one way to follow the rules is, is we know them and we, and we strive to keep them all, right? Each and every one of them. We focus on the rules themselves. I think about when I was getting my learner's permit and I got the paper book and it had a bunch of rules and you go through the book and you remember which way do you turn your wheels on a downhill slope and how long do you have to stop at a stop sign and all the hundreds and hundreds of rules that you had to memorize in order to pass the test. And I spent a lot of time memorizing those rules because I really wanted to pass the test and, and get my license. But after I got my license, I've never picked up a driving book again. Right? I don't know, does anybody read driving rule books these days? No, you read it when you're getting your license. It serves a purpose. I achieved what I needed to, and I passed my test. It really wasn't something that I, I loved, right? So I don't pursue it. We all have things like this. We know the rules we need to to get the things done that we need to get done at times, right? And sticking with the, the driving analogy, there's... We know that there's people who enforce those rules, right? There are police officers who enforce the rules of the road with civil and sometimes criminal penalties. And like I said, some of, some of these rules we follow because they make us feel good to follow them, and others like to break them a little, like five to ten miles an hour over the speed limit, right? Um, it's just, that's just keeping up with traffic, isn't it, right? I wonder how many of us follow these rules because we love civil and criminal government legislation. Like, that's our bag. We just love legislation written by our congressmen. That's why we follow these rules. If, if that's you, I, we can talk later. Maybe you get really excited when, when there's the news story of all the new laws that are going to come out in January and, and we can learn about all the new laws we're going to sit under in the coming year. Yeah, so what if we looked at the Ten Commandments? What if we raised the bar by quite a bit from speeding 
to the rules of God, the rules that the creator God has written down for us on a stone tablet by hand on a mountain and given to us. I think most of us could, could name a lot of the Ten Commandments. There's don't murder, steal, don't have other gods before me, don't covet, no idols, honor your parents. That's a good one, right? We, parents remember that one to tell our kids. Um, don't lie, don't blaspheme, no adultery, remember the Sabbath. Right? These, are all, these are all good things. And there's only 10 of them. There's not 300 like there were in the, in the driver's learner's permit book. And these rules were written by God. And, and God is also in charge of enforcement of these rules. Not your local police officer, God is. And his penalty for breaking these rules is much more severe than a civil or a, a legal ticket. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. Right? And we know as a result of the fall in Genesis that that means a physical death. Right? Adam and Eve brought that about for us. But it also means an eternal death in hell where we suffer just and righteous punishment for eternity. Right? It's serious. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, an evangelist. He's on a lot of social media. His name is Ray Comfort. And he does a program called The Way of the Master. And he goes out on the street and he asks people a simple question. He walks up to strangers and he says, are you a good person? And 99% of the time, they'll say, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. Uh, you know. And then what he does is he walks them through the Ten Commandments. Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever stolen anything? A pencil, a post-it note, time from work. Have you ever used God's name in vain? Have you ever lusted after a man or a woman? And by the time he's done, right, they're convicted and they say, and he says, well, if God is just, would you go to heaven or to go to hell? And most of them say, well, if God is just I would, and I've broken all these laws, I would go to hell. And the scary thing is, though, that most of them, it's not a moment of conversion. Most of them just kind of say, yeah, I guess I'd go to hell and whatever. You know, sometimes you see the spirit work and sometimes you see change, but most of the time in those talks, it's, it's not. So it seems that the fear of punishment, right, isn't enough. Maybe it's enough to keep us from running a stop sign, but it's not enough to necessarily keep us from breaking God's law. It's only a great love of God that will do that. Thomas Chalmers was a, a famous Scottish preacher in the early 1800s, and he wrote a, I don't, I'm not sure if it's a sermon or a book, but it's about 10 or 12 pages long, it takes about 45 minutes to read. It's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. I really recommend it. You can get it online. I'll post the PDF later. But I'm going to read the opening two paragraphs here. And the language is a little difficult, so stick with me. It says, There are two ways in which a practical moralist may attempt to displace from the human heart its love of the world, or sin, either by demonstration of the world's vanity, or its sin, so as the heart shall be prevailed upon simply to withdraw its regard from an object that is not worthy of it, or by setting forth another object, even God, as more worthy of its attachment, so that the heart shall be prevailed upon not to resign an old affection, which shall have nothing to succeed it, but to exchange an affection for a new one. My purpose is to show that from the constitution of our nature, the former method is altogether incompetent and ineffectual, and the latter method will alone suffice for the rescue and recovery of the heart from the wrong affection that domineers it. So 
some old English kind of Scottish language in there, but basically what he's saying is to defeat sin and to refocus our heart, we can't say don't sin, right? We can't just make it a negative. We have to have a new affection. We have to have something new to replace the old affection. Why do we sin? We sin because we love sin, right? That's why we sin, because we love it. We need a new love. And that's what Chalmers is offering for. Only a new love can replace the old love, and it's the new love of Christ. And I think that's what John calls us to here as well. Not just to stop sitting, but to love Christ. And so, yes, we're, if, if we continue on in, in the rest of verse 1, and, and yes, we're still in verse 1, and yes, I know, we've got to move faster. <laughs> we see John lay out a remedy for us when we do sin. It says, but if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So he's writing us that we may not sin. The remedy after we do sin is also the method of prevention. To help us grow in our sanctification and prevent us from sinning. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing. Look at the condition he lays out to receive Christ as advocate. The first condition is... He says, um, but if any, anyone does sin, right? Check. That's all of us, right? If anyone does sin. So if we do sin, then we get, this attrib- we get an advocate. And the word here that John uses for advocate is uh, very interesting. It's the word parakletos, which is the same word he uses in his gospel of John. And John is the only one who uses this word. But it means uh, helper in the ESV or some other... Um, Translations translate it as comforter. And the four other times it's used in the Gospel of John, it's referring to the Holy Spirit as helper or comforter. But here, interestingly, John applies it to Jesus as our helper, as our comforter, when we do sin. Who else would we want as our helper, as our advocate, than Jesus Christ? It's a beautiful thought that because we sin... Right? Not in spite of our sin, but because of our sin, Jesus is our advocate. He represents us. He stands in front of God to make account for our lives. Who is his advocate? John says he's the man. He's the man Jesus, the man we know from the Gospels who walked this world, who faced our trials. Right? We knew, he knew what it was to be treated unfairly. He knew what it was to deal with issues of life, of death and taxes and family. He knew hunger and thirst and sadness. He knew what it was to be abandoned by his friends. He knew physical pain and the cruel and vicious death. This is our advocate, our helper, someone who can relate to us, to our lives, to our suffering. But he wasn't just a man. John calls him Jesus Christ. And Christ wasn't his last name. It was a title. And it means the anointed one. And anointing is an old practice. It goes back very ancient into the Old Testament Uh, Usually the priests or prophets would pour out oil on the kings, and they were the chosen one, the blessed ones, the anointed ones. And so we see Jesus Christ as Jesus, the anointed one. And who was he anointed by? He was anointed by the great I Am, Yahweh, God the Father. This is who anointed him. So who better to stand in front of the Father and plead our case and advocate for us than the one that the Father has anointed the one the Father has called blessed. He knows what it is to be human and is blessed by the judge, but there's still more too. 
John calls him Jesus Christ the righteous. And we see the word righteous here is pulling double duty. It's also a title. He is the righteous one. But his righteousness is also our plea, or his plea on our behalf. When Christ advocates for us, he has one argument. He only makes one argument for us. And it's his perfect righteousness. It's his law keeping. It's his behavior. It's his morality. He is arguing his perfect death, even death into a cross. Romans 5, 19 reads, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many were made righteous. So our helper, our advocate, who we receive because we sin, knows perfectly and intimately what it is to be human. At the same time, is, blessed, is the blessed and anointed one of God. This Jesus presents our case, and his argument that God accepts is his perfect and sinless obedience that has been granted to us in faith. Right? I'm really looking forward to Romans, to our Romans study, if you couldn't tell, but uh, there's, Romans 3 has this little snippet here. And it says, Romans 3.22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So we see some things in Romans and, and quickly here in, in 1 John 2. Jesus is our propitiation and there is no distinction. We are all sinners and his offering was for the whole world, not just the Jews. It was for the Jews and the Gentiles. And quickly, propitiation is, is a theological term but it has a pretty simple definition. It's, it's an act of appeasement or making things right typically through a gift, right? You've angered your wife and you buy her some flowers <laughs> or she's angered you and bought you some steak or something else. I don't know. <laughs> I'll take steak over flowers. Um, but what's, what's happened is it was a blood sacrifice on our behalf. We have a broken relationship with the Father and with God himself. And by Christ's blood sacrifice, any who would believe, and that means any who would believe, he's provided the gift of his blood to make things right, to restore a relationship. So we're in, we're in verse 3 now. We're really flying through the verses. <laughs> at, at this rate, we might be done by Tuesday. Um, but I'll, I'll try and hurry up, I promise. The reason I've spent so much time in these first two verses when I know we're supposed to cover a chapter is because I think it's really key. I think it's key that we understand the love of God. I think it's key we understand his uh, offering for us. I think it's key we understand what it is that we're being called to and who it is that's done it. We understand his advocating on our behalf. So we get to verse 3. And, and verse 3 says, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Right? He says, We know that we have come to know him. Right? That, that's assurance that we know we have come to know him. It's assurance of our faith. He says, How do we know this? He says, We know this if we keep his commandments. Well, we just said earlier that we're not very good at keeping his commandments. Right, So this sounds more like discouragement than assurance already. But what we have to look at here is not the minute by minute, second by second of our life. Did I, did I sin this morning? Yes. 
Have I been in a season even of difficulty? Perhaps, yes. But it's referring to the bent of our life, right? What is the habit of our life? What is the pattern of our life? Do we seek after obedience? Do we attempt to live a life that honors Christ's words and commandments? Do we come in repentance? Do we come with confession? Not that we don't fail or fail daily, but what is our goal? What are our desires? If they are a life of to obedience, then we can know that we know him. Right? We can know we know him. Verse 4 tells us if we pretend and say we know him, but the pattern and the bent of our life is not towards obedience, then we are a liar. Right? Those are hard words, perhaps important words today. And verse 5 offers assurances again that if our life is a life striving to obedience to his commands, the love of God is perfected in us. The love of God is perfected in us through sanctification. It is brought to maturity in us through sanctification. Our knowledge of God and his word leads to a love that leads to a life of obedience. I'll say that again. Our knowledge of God and his word leads to a love that leads to a life of obedience. And this section holds out another assurance and another question for us. The end of five says, we may know him that we are in him. This is an essence of assurance of salvation. If we are in him, if we abide in him, we're never more secure or never more safe. If we claim to be a Christian, we claim to be we claim that we abide in Christ. And if we claim that we should be walking in the way w- which he walked, John Stott had a helpful comment on this. He said, it is abiding in him that enables me to live like him. I don't do it in my strength. I do it in his. I don't have to be like him to be assured. I want to be like him and am assured. We cannot claim to abide in him unless we are like him. But as we abide in him, we will be like him because we will know him. John quotes Jesus in uh, chapter 15 of his gospel, verse 5. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So we see even in abiding in Jesus, it's Jesus that does the work, not us. He does the work in us and through us and for us. And John's next question is for us as another comparison, one between love and hate and light and dark. And it should bring to mind the discussion from chapter 1. We see in, in verse 7 and 8 here, see, it's kind of a strange set of verses. He says, I am writing an old commandment, not a new one. And then immediately in verse 8, he says, I'm writing a new commandment. So it seems like he contradicts himself. So is it an old commandment or is it a new commandment? And the answer is yes. It's an old commandment and a new commandment. And I guess we should talk about what the commandment is, but we'll see quickly uh, in Leviticus 19.18. So it's an old commandment. Leviticus was written about 1,300 years uh, before this book. It says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord, Leviticus 19.18. And we see the same commandment made new in Christ. In John 13, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John Stott, helpful again, says, love is as old as the sun and as new as the dawn. Right? It's been around forever. But Jesus makes it new. The command to love had been there for a long, long time. 
from the beginning, but it had never been as clearly demonstrated as when Jesus demonstrated it himself in his life and death. We keep reading in verse 8. It says, this command is true in Christ. I'm sorry, it says, um, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. True in Christ and true in us. John 8, 12 says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus reminds us that he is the light. He provides the light and is the light of life. We are called to follow in that light. In verse 8, we see it says that the darkness, sin, and hate is passing away since the accomplishments of Jesus were made effective and his light, the light of life, is shining. It's his light that's making the darkness go away, not our performance. It's Christ and him alone. Verse 9 through 11 closes the section and, and sounds a lot like uh, the verses at the end of chapter 1 and the verses 4, 5, and 6 from this chapter. It's a, what Joel referred to as a sin sandwich, which doesn't sound very appetizing. Um, it says, Do you think that you abide in the light, the light of life? You do not love, then you are a liar, and you actually are in the dark. Right? Verse 10 says, Do you live a life with the habit and patterns of loving a brother? If you do, then you're walking in the light. You abide in Christ. You have life. Right? There's no cause for stumbling. Right? Is that our bent? Is that our practice? Verse 11 closes with a stern set of warnings. If you've answered no to the previous questions about loving your brother, if your life is one of, of hate for your brother, for your neighbor, for your fellow men, then here are four conditions that John lays out. He says, you are in darkness, meaning you are separated from Christ. If he is the light and you are in darkness, you must not be near him. You are spiritually dead. Right? That's a scary thing. You are walking in darkness. You, you proceed to walk in darkness. You are in danger you're living in that darkness, and that's not a place you want to live. You are aimlessly wandering, not making progress towards anything. And finally, perhaps most tragically, you are blind. You're unable to open your eyes even to the darkness. You don't not know if it's dark or not. You're unable to see and even assess your danger. So life without light is a scary proposition, and life without love is scary as well. John ties them together to not love, to not know, to be disobedient and to be, is to be as blind is to be a blind man staggering around a dark room. All right, we're going to quickly move on to the section. You can probably see it's kind of offset in, in your Bible. Sections, uh, verses 12 through 14, we see uh, John say, I am writing or I have written to you or I write you a total of six times. And he addresses three different groups here. He's addressing little children, fathers, and young men. All of these in the, in the context of the church. And, and again, John, as an old man, is not addressing these three different groups as their chronological age. He's addressing them as their spiritual maturity in the, in the faith. It's important to understand, while we might consider ourselves children or fathers or, or young men, and yes, it, it means women too, so ladies, it means you as well, um, we might fall into one of these particular groups. 
It's written for the whole church, so there's something for us in all of them. And his first address is to the little children. These are to the new in faith, to the to new converts, people who are just being born. And he tells them, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Is there any better news for the new Christian? Your sins are forgiven. Think about the guilt that you carried and the weight of that guilt being removed. Uh, when you hear your sins are forgiven, it's a beautiful thing. It's what they need to hear. And he says your sins are forgiven, and there's no condition on that. He doesn't say your sins will be forgiven or your sins might be forgiven. He says your sins are forgiven. And he says they are forgiven for his name's sake. Could there be any more sure of a thing than God doing something for his own name's sake? Right? That's a sure thing that's going to happen. And that feeling, that feeling of of new birth, the feeling of a clean slate, of our sins being removed, our sins being lifted off of us is, is the feeling of, of our salvation. Right? We're no longer under the weight and penalty of sin. It's something we get uh, to be reminded of every time we go through confession. We confess and we remove the burden or weight of sin that we carry, that we shouldn't be carrying, and we confess. It's a weight lifted off of us. It's a small taste of what the new Christian believes and gets to feel. He next addresses church fathers. And these are the wise among the flock, the patient and the faithful. They are the mature in faith. They are solid in their convictions. They know the voice of their shepherd, and they're not easily deceived. Spurgeon pointed out another helpful aspect of fathers in the faith. He says, The fathers of the church are the men of heart who naturally care for the souls of others. It is a grand thing when Christian men and Christian women come to this. They are not perpetually thinking of their own salvation and of their own souls being fed under ministry, but they care most of all for those who are weak and feeble in the church. And this is a beautiful thing to be, right? The church needs fathers like this. And John commends these men for one thing. He says, because you know him who is from the beginning. So in their maturity, they know one thing. They know Christ, the eternal Christ. Paul expresses this in Second Corinthians or First Corinthians two two, Corinthians two two. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus and Him crucified. Spurgeon goes on to say that babes in Christ may know twenty things, young men in Christ may know ten things, but the fathers in Christ know one thing, and that's Christ and Him crucified. And that's all they need to know. It's sufficient. And now the young men, not the new converts, but not yet the fathers. They are full of vigor and energy. They are able to eat theological meat and not just drink the milk, to use Paul's analogy. These uh, young Christians are attacked because they're no longer babes and because they're not quite as stable as a father in the faith. So they're targets of the enemy And John tells us three things about these young men. They have overcome the evil one, right? 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So in Christ, they have defeated the evil one. And every time they resist, every time we resist the devil, it's a defeat of the devil, according to James. James says, submit yourself therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. If he's fleeing from us, we've won the battle, right? At least that battle, and to fight another battle later. 
It says they are, these young men, it says they are strong. And we see they are strong because the word of God abides in them. It's the source of their strength and it's the assurance of their victory over the evil one. If we look back at verses 5 and 6, the fact that the word of God abides in them means they're walking as the Lord walks. It means they have the love of God perfected in them. It's a strength that cannot be denied. It means a victory over the evil one as well. And there's more here. These, this, these three verses are a sermon to themselves. And again, so I would, I would encourage you to do, to do two things. I would, consider you to, I would encourage you to consider where you fall. Are you a babe in Christ? Are you a young man? Or are you a spiritual father? And then I, I would invite you to look at these assurances and, and to take account of all of them, right? They're for the whole church. Um, and we wrap up, wrap up the, the message with um, two warnings. One is to not love the world, and the other one that we had referenced earlier, a warning against concerning Antichrist. And again, this do not love the world is worthy of its own sermon as well. But the key here, again, is, is the battle of our loves. Do we love the things of the world, or, or do we love God? That's the choice. We can't love both. There's no choice to love the world and God. When we, we look at the things that the world offers that, that are listed here, we see three distinct things that are, that are from the world and not from the Father in verse 17. We see the desires of the flesh, we see the desires of the eyes, and we see the pride of life. When we look at Jesus, which is what we should always be doing, when we look at Jesus and we see an example of Jesus being tempted with these exact things when he's tempted by Satan after fasting for 40 days on the desert in Luke 4. The devil tempted him with his flesh by inviting Jesus to turn the stone into bread. Right? The devil tempted Jesus with his eyes by showing him all the kingdoms of the world and saying they could be his. And the devil tempted him with the pride of his life by telling him to throw himself down and to see if the angels would catch him before he fell. Jesus was tempted with everything of the world that's listed here with all these desires, and he didn't, he didn't falter. He was the new and better Adam. And he, he wasn't the first Adam tempted and fell. Jesus uh, did not uh, fall. When, when we see these things, we see the, the desires of our eyes, the desires of our flesh, the pride of life. It can be scary, right? These are, these are real things. It's my hope that as we go and as we grow in maturity, these things might look less tempting, right? I think they're always going to be there. And I know I am prone to wander. Like the song says, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We look at desires of flesh, desire of the eyes, the pride of life. The hard thing is, these are in us. We carry these everywhere we go, it seems like. We can't get away from them. But our, our hope, once again, is not in our perfect ability to resist these temptations and that we may never falter in these things, that we never wander again. It should be our desire. Right? It should be our goal. It should be what we want. I want to not sin. I want to not fall victim to these desires. But if we do sin, if we do falter, we have an advocate, right? We're reminded we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous is our advocate in front of the Father. 
He is our propitiation for our sins. He restores relationship through the gift. And this is good news, brothers and sisters. So what do we do with all this today, right? We have this letter written to a church 2,000 years ago. How does it apply to Cross Point, Cape Canaveral today? How does it apply to our lives? I would invite us to ask ourselves the same questions. The questions are just as valid today as they were then. Sin is just as real today as it was then, and Christ is just as real today as he was then. Do the patterns of our life reflect a goal of obedience to his word, love of our neighbors, and denial of the world? Again, not every second of every day, but in general, do we see growth, right? You may need help with that one. Sometimes we don't see growth in ourselves. You can ask somebody. Uh, wives uh, ask husbands, husbands ask wives, parents and children, uh, or, or friends ask each other. Um, if the answer is yes, then there's assurance, right? We are abiding in Christ. It is him who is doing the work. And our sins have been forgiven for his name's sake. That is a sure thing. If your answer is no, if that's not what your life is, it's okay. You're in the right place today. Christ came for the whole world, for the Jews and the Gentiles, the poor and the needy and the broken. And what he's calling us to isn't firstly to obedience. The first call is to know him, right? To know him. And being here is part of knowing him. And being in community is part of knowing him. Being with a family that loves him is a part of knowing him. It's to know him And once we know him, we will love him. And once we love him, we will want to obey him. If you want to know more about him, I'd invite you to grab me, grab somebody here, grab somebody you came with. Just ask somebody. They'd be happy to tell you to get to know him, to love him, to obey him. Join me in prayer. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it's so um, good to have assurance, Lord, that you've provided us, Lord, that you've made a way to restore relationship, and it's not through our behavior, not through our rule-keeping, but yours. Lord, I pray that you would help us fight sin. I pray that you would help us grow in holiness, not for our benefit, but for your glory, though we would benefit But I pray if these questions are not true of us today, Lord, that you would convict us, Lord, that we would know. Just as we have assurance of salvation, we would have assurance that we are not saved, if that be the case. And Lord, that you would do what only you can do, that you would work a miracle and that you would save, that you would draw near to yourself. Lord, we pray all these things dependent on on you, for you to work in your name and for your name and for your glory. Amen.